Um, hard to believe. I cannot believe it's summer or September <laughs> and that summer is coming to a close, that Eden is eight months old. I mean, this is just wild. And then when I say it's September, that also means that winter is coming. Am I allowed to say that when it's so beautiful outside? Don't say it yet. <laughs> Brad's like, don't say it yet. Don't do it. Uh, we are in our last, our last Sunday of our summer series together. We believe we've spent the entire summer reflecting in the midst of a, a changing landscape what we at Hillcrest are anchored in, what truths we find our, our, uh, our confidence in, and then we've tried to unpack them. A- and it is this sense uh, of engaging minds and awakening our hearts. Because uh, because we are convinced Jesus had some words for us in Matthew 28. Does that sound familiar? Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples. But we feel like in our 21st century, in order to make disciples, we need to wake disciples. And it is this awakening of our hearts to see the truth that we have and the need and the, the, the hope that people need all around us. And so we felt like we've been packing, unpacking it in two ways, that we've been deprogramming some of the stories we've been hearing from our culture and reprogramming us with some truth that we hear from the text, that we've been deprogramming this consumer mentality, that, that it feels like it's the water we swim in. Do you guys feel that? Everywhere we go, we are asked to be a consumer and, and, and sometimes we bring that into the church that we begin asking and judging everything we do around here through the same lens uh, that we also then want it on our timetable, that we love instant gratification. And so we've been deprogramming this sense of instant gratification because things move a little slower. Rather than instant gratification, we've been pressing for delayed gratification in all areas of life. And yet, when things don't happen on my timetable, whose fault is that often? Someone else's. And we've been deprogramming the sense of judgment that we're shifting from a window mentality to a mirror mentality. And there's this apathy, though, that sets in. And so we are trying to say there is joy in Jesus. And so today is one of my favorite doctrines because it feels like a universal principle, because we've been asking, how do we spend our time, our treasure, our talent? And we can tell really quickly what we value in life in the way we spend our time, treasure, and talent. Because I think back to dating, my favorite shows in life and then sports, it's just an inevitable byproduct of life. I remember when I was dating Casey, there was a sense of, where I spend my time, my treasure, my talent gets reflected. Uh, I remember I was very interested in this girl. And then one day she parked outside my apartment complex and her car got towed. And I had to determine fairly quickly in the way I spend my time, my resources, <laughs> and my energy, do I love this girl enough that I want to go pay for her car to get out of the impound? Or am I going to pass that cost on to her and say, That was your fault, babe. You got to go get your car figured out. If you can imagine where we are today, 12 years later, I may have paid to get her car taken out of the impound lot. Your favorite show. Where you spend your time, your money, 
your talent what just feels like an inevitable byproduct. No one sticks around watching a show they don't actually enjoy. Maybe you do. But you enjoy watching the show and you, you get sucked into the storyline. And some may claim that the Packers are the greatest team in the NFC North and allocate time, money, and your resources to be able to validate what you believe to be true. There is an inevitable byproduct that flows out of our life with what we treasure. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Oh, and by the way, we put the PowerPoint notes on the website again. Does anybody have a, 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 a smartphone? You can pull up the notes, and if someone next to you didn't have it, you can pull up the slides that we're going through because without, <laughs> without the PowerPoint notes, you're not the only ones getting distracted if you haven't noticed while we've been outside. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about this reality. He says, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. If indeed we could consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it wouldn't seem that our Lord finds our desires too strong but too weak, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition. And, and, and when joy is offered, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. There is this inevitable expression that flows out of our life when we begin to treasure something more. We spend our time, our treasure, our resources, our talent there. And so this is the doctrine that I'm excited for us to tackle today on this beautiful, beautiful Labor Day weekend. It says this, that we believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from a sanctifying power and purpose. That God sacrificially that God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially and to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion towards the poor and justice for the oppressed. With God's word, the spirit's power and fervent prayer in Christ's name, we are to combat the spiritual forces of evil in obedience to Christ's commission. We are to make disciples among all people, always bearing witness to the gospel in word and deed. And why I care about this doctrine so much because I think it's why the unchurched stay unchurched. And I think it's why those who go to church still miss it. Why do the church stay unchurched? Because they think they have to sacrifice their joy. They have to give up their joy in order to experience life with Jesus. And then they look around and they don't know a single Christian that is passionately growing in their joy in Jesus. And what it feels like is we in the church mission, we feel like we got to just bear it down and do these things. We just got to suck it up with our time, with our money and our talent to follow Jesus. And we don't know any joy-filled believers within the church itself either. This, this concept of ongoing spiritual transformation spurs us on, and yet, how's it actually work? 
So we're going to spend some time this morning pressing into the reality of this ongoing spiritual transformation. Pray with me. God, you're so good. With the wind over the speaker, with the distractions that exist, the beautiful sunny weather that we get to experience, may we see it all as a reflection of your grace. And we see our lives continuing to grow and experiencing that grace one step at a time. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to try and tackle it in two ways. Living differently results from the work that he has done and is doing in our lives. So if you open up, we mapped out our salvation story. That God is at work in our lives. And there's a beginning where God was at work before time began. And then in real, in real time, is this going to bother you? It's bothering me. Can you guys tell that? That wind coming over this mic is just driving me nuts. Is it driving anybody else nuts? It's just driving me nuts. It's little things in life. Anybody else? Thank you. Thanks, Terry. Can I go past the speakers now, or am I still limited? I'm going to take that as I'm still limited. How far can I go? Because you guys are so far away. I just feel, I just feel this tension, right? Because when you're in a conversation, do you sit like 20 feet away from someone to talk to them? You don't do that, right? You sit across the table and you have a conversation. You don't like try and find, and, and we understand the people in the back. They're trying, those are the good seats back there. They are as far away as they possibly can. I do understand. So ongoing spiritual transformation. There's this journey in our salvation story where before time began, God predestined us. That's the language of the text in Romans. And then in real time, someday we have a conversion experience where we choose to follow Jesus. That's attention for another time. And then at that conversion experience, something miraculous happens. It's called justification. I'm going to go back to the notes and define it. And then there's this ongoing process of sanctification till Jesus returns or he calls us home. And then we enter the beauty of glorification where there is no more tears, no more pain. And we long for that day, the future we anticipate. And so what happens now? What is going on when we choose Jesus and how this ongoing story continues? I want to read Romans 6, where I think we see some of that reality taking shape. And what we're going to see is something changes in our thinking, in our feelings, in our actions. That at justification, when we choose Jesus, something happens legally before God and us where he no longer sees our brokenness, but he sees his son covering our brokenness. And it is a one-time experience. And then there's this thing called sanctification, where it's ongoing. It's happening all the time, every moment of every day. And it's inward. Something's happening inward that's transforming us from the inside and it gets displayed out. So turn to Romans 6 with me, and we're going to unpack a little bit of this thing that's taking place. Romans 6, 1 to 23. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, I made a decision to follow Jesus. Do I just stay where I am? Do I just stop growing? What do you think Paul says? 
by no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that we who died to sin still live? How do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him in this ongoing spiritual journey. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God so that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. We're going to come back to that one. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. There has been a transformation. Live in a way that reflects there was a transformation. How? We're going to talk about that later. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that you that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of disobedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have committed. And having been set free, you guys are getting overwhelmed. We're not going to go through this entire thing. It's going to be a very cursory experience of Romans 6. This is one of the most profound chapters in the most profound book next to John. Nuts. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And the last section here for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is dead, but now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its ends eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 6, and we're going to do a very cursory experience of it, there's three significant movements that speak to what's taking place and what God has done. One, there is a change in our thinking. You can see it there, verse 14 and verse 11. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. What must we do? There's a change in our thinking. What must we do? So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's an inevitable byproduct of the way we spend our time, our treasure, and our talent, and it starts with our thinking, right? When I started dating Casey, there was something that I believed to be true about who this woman was, right? I thought she was beautiful. 
I thought, man, I want to spend my time with her. I want to spend money to make sure her car is not impounded, right? But it started where? It started with my thinking. There was something I believed to be true that this was a woman I might want to spend my life with. Talk about your favorite show. Starts with your thinking. You actually think The Bachelor is a great show. I don't know what you're thinking, but some of you actually think The Bachelor is a great show, and it starts there. And again, I don't know what you're thinking, but some of you actually think the Packers are a good team. I don't know what you're thinking, but you actually believe this. And then Paul continues in Romans 6. He says, there's something you believe to be true about who God is, that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It starts with our thinking, but then it moves and touches our heart. So we're going. Because here's where we might go from here. Where we go from our thinking and we immediately go to what we do. Is that what Paul says? Feels like sometimes in the church, why the unchurched stay unchurched and why sometimes we in the church miss it, we skip this vital part of the sanctification process. Verse 17. And I'll read verse 16. Do you not know that you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves? You are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. If we stopped there, we'd go, well, then I just got to obey. I just got to do it. My thinking has been changed, so now I just do it. But I love how he develops the sanctification process in verse 17. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from where? From the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That there is a transformation taking place in the heart as well. That it doesn't just start with my thinking, man, I want to get to know Casey but my emotions begin reflecting that belief. You, you watch The Bachelor and your emotions start getting tied to all those men or women on the show. You're, you're like, you start cheering for one of them to win, whatever winning means in that context. Your emotions get tied. It's not just a duty to watch the show or a duty to, to love my wife. There's actually an emotion tied to this. And then what does he say? Picking it up, verse 21, and I'll say 20. There's actually a change in the way I live. For when you were in slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit you were getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed, for the end of those things is death. But here's the beauty. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life that there is a byproduct that begins happening in the way we spend our time, in the way we allocate money, and then where we leverage our talents. Here's where we might go, and I wanna give some cautions as we enter into that second section of ongoing spiritual transformation, and it's on your slides there. Because here's where, here's where we might be tempted to go. 
stinking wind. Here's where we could be tempted to go in this process. I'm not where I want to be. I don't see that change happening nearly as quickly as I want. We're combating that story of immediate gratification. I don't see that happening as quickly in my life. What am I tempted to do? I start beating myself up. Or I don't see it happening as quickly in other people's lives. What do we do? Stink and start judging them. Why aren't they further on? Why can't they figure out their life? We're combating that story of judgment to actually reflect on our own life and our own limitations. And then, an encouragement, do remember, right? That it's not just committing to trying harder, but it is remembering. It's a process, and we're about to see how miraculous of a process it is to live differently, happily living lives that reflect the gift we've received. So turn to Philippians 2, verse 12 to 13. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. It's like I should have an iPad or something, huh? Instead of hard paper. Philippians 2, 12 to 15, here's what it says. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What do you hear in that? What do you hear, Terry? Man. That God is intimately, he didn't just set you up and say, man, go get it. Give you a little pat on the butt and say, you know, good luck. In this battle to find more satisfaction in him, it's not just good luck. But then what does he also say? Don't lose out that you actually have a role in it. How's that work? I want to explore that process in two ways. One, by asking, what if I underemphasize the role that I've been gifted in this ongoing journey of spiritual transformation? But then two, let's explore, what if I overemphasize my role? What if I actually think I'm better than I am? What would that look like? So first, Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What's that look like? What might it look like for us to overemphasize our role and believe that we are actually the, 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 the determiners of our fate? What would it look like to overemphasize our role in this ongoing spiritual journey? What would you say, Tim? Uh, there's a beautiful benefit, potentially perceived benefit, I'll call it that, that there's ownership and responsibility. You mean I get to work out my, my salvation for us growth mindset people? We go, how beautiful. What else? What else would be? a liability of overemphasizing our role. 
How so? Come on, who gets the glory? <laughs> when I'm more patient to my wife, who gets the glory? Don't you know how a patient of a man I am? If we take more ownership over the spiritual transformation, who gets the glory? And we do. We do. But what also could accompany that if I overemphasize my role? I just get tired. It's just exhausting. To put up this front that I have to be perfect all the time. Sometimes when we walk through this door together as a church family, we feel like we have to have it all together. It is exhausting. This is why I write them down on a PowerPoint slide. Makes it a little more challenging, right? And I think we begin to overextend ourselves. If I think it's all on me, do you guys look around the world lately and feel like there's some need? If this spiritual transformation is exclusively or I overemphasize my role, I begin overextending myself and I begin compromising on things that actually should take some time and energy. And then, like I said, the benefit of ownership and responsibility actually becomes a perceived benefit. The liabilities are very real of feeling the guilt that I just don't ever measure up. But instead, Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for what? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That could lead me, though, if I hear that, to underemphasize my role. What would be a potential liability of underemphasizing the role we have in this ongoing spiritual journey of finding more life in Jesus? Man, yeah, I, I just sit back. God's just going to show up. I don't got to do a thing, right? Did I sin that grace may abound? I'll just sit back. And I become apathetic. I become lazy. I'm just going to show up. And then when it doesn't happen in my life, who's to blame? Well, not me. Who's God's work in my life? Who becomes where the blame is shifted? God, why aren't you showing up in my life? If I under-emphasize under my role, what else could be a liability? Fred said this this week. You guys ever heard of the word derelict of duty? I guess it's a military term. I'm not sure. If I give up on my role, I'm actually diminishing the impact of sin. Sin just isn't that big of a deal. And pursuing joy in Jesus just isn't that big of a deal. I've just abdicated my role, a derelict of duty. I've just diminished the power of sin. Instead, what does Paul say the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful mystery is in the sanctification process? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who wills and works in you. How did you get here this morning? For many of us, we would say, 
Why well, I made a conscious choice to get my butt in the car, drive over here, be here around 1045, and yet simultaneously, God was doing a miracle in your life to gather for biblical community. Shatters my mind. I wake up and go, God, I want to continue to see this work, this mystery working out in our lives as a Hillcrest Church family. So the inevitable question then is, how do I know sanctification is working in my life? Turn to slide like 49 or something like that. And I wrote about six bullets. How do I actually know that I'm growing, that I put my faith in Jesus to reconcile me to the Father? And yet, how do I know I'm growing? Because I would sure love instant sanctification. I just press B5 and out comes some Doritos. I would love that. And yet, that's not how it happens. How might I know I'm being sanctified? Because there is this increased confidence and faith in Jesus. That feels so abstract. And yet there's this growing confidence that I have been adopted as a son or a daughter of the king for an infinite reward and a future I anticipate. There is a greater confidence of the future we anticipate. And there's an increased affection for Jesus. In the way I spend my time, in the way I spend my money, in the way I use my talent, there's this increased affection. You know, I think I could say I love Casey more today and I want to love her more tomorrow. There's an affection that you guys have for The Bachelor. You, you actually rally, you rally to watch these shows, have watching parties. There's an affection we have for sports. What do we do? We rally for fantasy football. And I love fantasy football. I think I'm going to win this year. I'll keep you guys updated as the season progresses. There's this increased affection. And there's an increased distaste for sin. We just feel that brokenness a little bit more in our heart. What breaks God's heart? What grieves his spirit? Are we asking, spirit, what is grieving your heart? And there's an increased expression and conviction that there is more joy in obedience than disobedience. <laughs> in a world that seems to say, why are boundaries valuable? We continue to cling to believe that the God-ordained boundaries are the healthiest most joy-producing thing for our life. Why might not I lie about a coworker to get ahead? Because we actually think there is more joy in telling the truth. Why, why might I want to share generously rather than hoard? Because we actually believe there's more joy in obedience. And then, how might I know I'm in this process? that there is an increased expression in everyday life and behavior and actions that display inner, ongoing transformation. What is happening inside gets expressed outwardly. And never-ending, unyielding, never-ceasing commitment to fight sin in order to pursue Jesus and his righteousness 
as we launch into James in the fall, this is what James is going to be all about for the next year. Buckle up. And that showing up on a Sunday is not enough in this unyielding passion to pursue more of Jesus. So if you're not in a life group, a life group becomes a place where we anchor our lives to fight together, but not just for our own transformation, but actually a never-ending, unyielding, never-ceasing commitment to invite others into the joy we have found, that we actually pray to a God who is at work, watch for his work, and then step. So I'm going to say an idea four times. And I'd love to give some space for what emotion might come out. (laughs) And then as we invite our worship team up, process what those emotions are doing for you. That you have been called by God to do his work. Are you filled with an emotion of of love and intimacy that you, you, that you have been called by God to do his work? And then are there tears with, with just how powerful that might be if you've ever experienced that, that you have been called by God to do his work. That when you sit with someone and you get to hear their challenges and struggles and they will say to you, it was because of your interest in asking questions and pursuing me that I'm actually growing in this journey. That you were called by God to do his work. What What emotion fills your heart that you are called by God to do his work? Is that an eye-opening experience for you? That in your workplace, in your school, at your home, that God is doing a work in your life? And through you, people are seeing Jesus, and you are growing to enjoy him more. That you are called by God to do his work. Is that mind-blowing? I hope at Hillcrest. We continue to experience that in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in our world, that mind-bending mystery that you are called by God to do his work in Oregon, in Dane County, and the ends of the earth. Pray with me. God, you are so good. Thank you for the work you are doing in our life. May we never underemphasize our role May we never overemphasize our role, but embrace the beauty that in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, that you are at work and we get to join you as you work through us and in us for your good work. Always for your glory, we pray.